Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Any single job I saw someone do, I would watch them do it. I'd study them. I still do this today. I would model the best person I saw doing it. So whoever was doing the best, I'd model exactly what they did and try and add another 10% or another 15% more creativity. But what I found was when we go outside the comfort zone, like we allow ourselves to feel that feeling of fear and discomfort long enough, we find something that we can't possibly discover inside. Extraordinary is a state of mind. Extraordinary is in the worst moments, in the hardest times, the times where you're really dragging your sorry ass around that you realize how grateful you are to be, just be alive. And then the extraordinary happens. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features business leader, author, trainer, coach, and humanitarian David Wood. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at David T. S. Wood. So I wanted to have David on this show because he isn't just someone who knows how to work hard and play hard. He embodies it. In fact, to date, I haven't had a guest on the show that embodies this balance in the way that David does. I first connected with David at a much deeper level at an event where my wife and I had the privilege of sharing the stage with him. We watched him captivate the audience, not through his amazing ability to just move the room, but rather through his ability to get people to embrace stepping out of their comfort zones. It's like, it's like watching a beautiful magic trick to watch him do this. In this episode, David will take you on the ride, challenging your current thinking from parenting to business to your current comfort zones. In this conversation, we talk about everything, how his history teacher telling him he'd wind up in jail changed his life entirely, how he went on a trip and decided to not come home and travel for the next 10 years straight. We'll also talk about the adrenaline week that he created for his children that has turned into them now traveling the world before they go to college. There's a great story about his son hitchhiking through Japan and sleeping in a restaurant. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and David T.S. Wood and let us know what you thought of it. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with David Wood. David, welcome to the show. Wow. I am so excited. I'm so excited to you. I'm excited to be on the show and uh, I just can't wait. I, I love shows like this where you just push record and we just go. And we just go. You know, I've been looking forward to this for so long and there really are no words that can do an intro to your life any meaningful justice. So I'm just going to say thanks for making the time and we're going to jump right in. Awesome. Let's do it. I'd like to begin at the beginning. And you grew up in England and at around seven years old, your parents split and you realized that if you wanted anything that you're going to have to work for it. So by age 11, you were involved with your first business and that was the business of breeding and selling guinea pigs. How did that time in your life shape your future business career? 
Well, it's interesting, you know, because my mom and dad, when they separated, they separated in Germany. And so my dad ostensibly abandoned the family. So we were moved into England under the wards of the state, which means that, you know, we were put into a condemned building, right? So already our life was pretty unusual. Um, So, you know, my mom was sort of, you know, absolutely uh, insane at this point because of what was going on in her life, being an abandoned foreign country. She's got these three kids, you know, and, and we're, again, we're in this sort of condemned place. So for even before I started doing the guinea pig thing and, and sort of, I, I did lots of things, but guinea pig was one of them. Um, I just realized that, you know, my mom had no money. She's working her tail off. And I used to start, I started working originally just to buy her cigarettes because when she smoked, she was nicer. <laughs> and, and so I used to go out there and I used to hustle and I'd come back with a box of cigarettes. And used to be able to buy, buy cigarettes in tens back then. I'm, I'm not sure if you can anymore. And so, you know, I, I, I was a hustler, right? And so, you know, we, we I, and in fact, this is terrible to say on your show probably, but I even stole my first two guinea pigs from the park because I didn't have any money to buy any. So I thought I had this idea. So first I had to get two guinea pigs and I knew they'd breed really fast. And then we bred rabbits. And at one point, I think I had 38 rabbits and 42 guinea pigs. Um, and I was just selling those. And then I did two, uh, two paper routes. Um, I washed cars on weekends and I just hustle. I just go out there and I just knew if I wanted to have anything in life, I better work for it, right? So how, how did they wind up uh, separating in Germany? I'm confused about that because because it, it's England where you're from, right? Right. My dad was in the army um, and my dad and my mom's best friend got together. They're still together uh, 40, 45 years later. So you can imagine there was a bit of tension around that. You know, when someone leaves your you <laughs> leave your mother for their best friend. It was it was a pretty hard time, and that's why my mom went crazy for many many years before she got right with that. Um, so we were we were in Germany because he was uh, he was in the in the military, right? That's actually a very common thing to happen, even in death. Like for example, my uh, my dad died last year, and I noticed that one of my dad's best friends is hanging around my mom a little bit too much. Yeah, there's something. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's something to it. Okay. So can you place us back on the day when you were around 15 years old and your history teacher, Mr. Orsler, sat you down and said, you know what? You're never going to amount to anything. You're probably going to wind up in jail. How did that inform your decision to leave school and never look back? I already disliked school because I wasn't, you know, I mean, I used to get beaten up at one point for being a slum kid. And it, when we lived, we lived in the East End of London, which is the hardest part of the country, right? Um, and so when the kids realized I lived in this condemned building, you know, I became a target because of poverty. You wonder why I'm wealthy today, right? But at 15, I, I, I just, you know, school was back then. I mean, the teachers were allowed to hit you. The kids could hit you. It just wasn't a very functioning kind of place. And I, I just couldn't wait to get out. But when he sat me down and him and I had a kind of an interesting rapport. And I mean, I used to do some things to, to mess him up and he'd try and get me back. You know, so there was it wasn't just a one way street, but he sat me down. He says, David, you're the worst student I've had in 37 years of teaching. And you're probably going to end up in jail or on the streets. And I looked at him and, you know, you know, you imagine what I said. And I got up and I just walked out of school and I never once thought about going back. It just never crossed my mind again. And it's interesting that I, you know, 
I've never been back to school since. I'm 57 coming up here, right? But I also was struggling at home. I mean, my mom and I, I mean, again, I don't want to make this as a sob, sob story because it's not a sob story, but, you know, I hated her. I just said she was just so violent and crazy and my, my house was dysfunctional. And I thought, you know, I just got to get out of here. So I walked out of my house and I started hustling like I'd been doing anyway. And, you know, and I've never looked back. And I just, you know, my first job was uh, I worked at a, an antique store uh, picture framers and it looked like a scene out of all of a twist i can't make this stuff up it was like a it really was you went in this dark sort of dingy basement and you know the, there was fine powder in the air and but we made we made some really interesting frames for some of the most beautiful masters in the world you know picasso and rembrandt and so i was around art and i, I collect art today uh, that influence sort of stayed with me but it was like living in all of a twist land i mean i was getting paid 40 pence an hour which you think about then i mean i'm not that old <laughs> But it was like Dickens, you know, and, and, you know, you'd work 60, 70 hours a week just to sort of be out of pay your bills and hustle. And, and that's when I, you know, when I really sort of started reaching out on my own, it's just at that age, 15, 16. And I started dating a lot of older women, which actually influenced me again, because they taught me how to think more like an adult than I was, you know, I was this kind of angry kid. And then these, these older women in my life started to sort of temper me out a little bit and sort of just show me a little bit of the, what the world was about, right? You know, you, you mentioned 40 pence per hour. I don't know. I don't know if there's an app that I can use to do that currency uh, uh, translation, but is 40 pence 40 cents? Yeah, yeah, you could say that back then. Uh, yeah, something like that. I mean, we're talking about a long time ago. It may have been about 30, 35 cents an hour back then. Um, wow. And, you know, and that was normal, you know. But what was really interesting about the British culture back then, and probably still is, is that we were taught. So, so my boss paid me for ca- in cash. And he'd pay me as low as he possibly could. And then I'd also collect pogi. And that was all of us did it. And so what we do one day a week, we'd come in with smart clothes on and we'd go down to the pogi office and we'd get pogi and that would balance out. So we'd earn a little bit more from that. But we were all kind of cheating the government. I mean, it's a welfare state, right? And that's how I grew up. I grew up thinking those thoughts that, you know, if you want to get ahead, you cheat and you sort of lie and you sort of, you know, it was, it was a little bit like that. <laughs> and I, I mean, I wouldn't change a thing to be quite honest with you, so. All right, so let's let's fast forward a little bit. So by 20, you were running pubs underage, chimney sweeping, doing landscaping, among many other things. But I have to know, because the thought of you sweeping a chimney is just not making sense in my brain. What's the playbook for a good chimney sweeper? Oh, gosh, listen to this. This is crazy. Because I, I had a window cleaning round. What happened? i tell you how I became a window cleaner. I was working at this place, 40 pence an hour. I came home, and my girlfriend at the time, she says... Oh, uh, one of your kids from school, or one of your one of your school friends was here today, and he cleaned our windows. And I said, "Well, how much you pay him?" And it was like four pounds or something. It's like what I'd earned the whole day, right? And I said, "What?" I started doing big pubs, big manor homes, and it was amazing. I suddenly felt freedom. I had a three wheel car. I made a fiberglass, my ladder's on the top, right? And I felt like I had to, I was free. You know, and some days I'd make a hundred pounds. So I went from making 40 pence an hour to making a hundred pounds in a day. And that from that led to people saying, Hey, do you know a chimney sweep? And so I found this, I, I see this, uh, this equipment for sale. And I, and I found this guy and I said, Hey, listen, you want to sell your equipment? And he says, Yeah. So I said, Well, listen, I'll, I'll canvas a route. 
And then you come out for a day and you teach me how to be a chimney sweep. He says, you're on. So anyway, he shows up and he's got the flu. He says, Dave, I can't come with you. Sorry. And so he's, we're in a parking lot of, a, of, a, of, a, of an Asda food or something like that. And he's showing me without a chimney, he's teaching me like in the parking lot how to sweep a chimney. So I throw the chimney sweeping stuff in the back of the car. I go to this first house. And again, I can't make this stuff up. Little old lady comes to the door. She says, okay. She says, come in. And I said, listen, I got to tell you, I said, you know, the way I work, um, I don't like people to be around in the room. So I'm going to ask you to, to stay in the kitchen. You know, it's just <laughs> the way I am. Because I had no idea what I was doing, right? And I go right. in there. She's, she's got this cream shag pile. Back then, shag pile was in, but it's a cream shag pile carpet. And I'm carrying this dirty chimney sweep with absolutely zero idea except knowing that, you know, how many brushes, you know, and, and how to screw it on. And then as you push it up, you twist, come down, twist put on another rod, up you go, right? And that's how I started. And I'm telling you, man, that first one, I don't even know if I swept the chip. <laughs> All I know is I stuck some brushes up. There's a lot of shit down. <laughs> and I was sweating and panicking. And all I could think was, don't leave a mess on a carpet. <laughs> Oh my God. All right. So let's, let's speed the, the clock up just a little bit further to when you left England with 12 buddies on a week vacation to North Africa. And you decided at the last minute that you were going to stay in Tunisia with the 2000 bucks that you had left in your money belt. Can you walk us through what it was like dealing with the fear that was associated with not speaking Arabic, not knowing about their culture. And in what way did this trip inoculate you for future trips? You know, it's interesting because I just pulled out a diary that I'd written and it was 500 pounds. It wasn't $2,000. I, I always thought it was that. I've said it for years and I read through my diary and I actually had 500 pounds, which was, again, a lot less. I played on a darts team and uh, our team won the league. So we decided we were to go for six days to Tunisia and it's 12 of us. And we go, well, 13 with me, and we go to the to Tunisia. It's just like a drunk fest. We're all-inclusive resort. We don't go out. I have no idea where Tunisia is. I couldn't point to it on a map. I didn't even know it was in North Africa, right? And so, you know, when they get to leave, I'm, I, I'd i been stirring. There'd been something stirring inside of me. And it was triggered by something. I rarely talked about this stuff, but I'd actually uh, been invited to a meditation class by this girl I was seeing. And, and it led to me writing poetry. And I started writing this really bizarre poetry. And it was just kind of like in this kind of state of clarity, I was writing this stuff that was telling me that there was more to life than I was experiencing, right? Hustle, booze, you know, darts, drugs, you know, and it was just like that, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And so when I, in Tunisia, I had this stirring already. And when they left, I remember, and I'm writing about it right now in my book, and it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, I was immobilized with fear. And I'm standing at the airport watching this plane take off and I'm drenched in sweat. And I know when I turn around, right, I have to step into this world. I have no idea what it is. And I start walking and all I remember was like, is like walking through pea soup. Everything was just like this overwhelming sense of, uh, of, 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 of fear. And, and, and what I did was like, the only thing I knew to do is go back to the same hotel because I knew where it was. And I stayed and I spent a week there. 
And I almost blew it. I mean, half through half my money was gone by the time that week was over. And I was terrified to go out. I didn't know what to do. And then the, the hustler kicked in. I thought, Dave, you know, and I kept looking at my passport thinking there's one stamp, it's Tunisia. And I thought, you know what? And when I get back, I'm going to show everyone where I've been. Because this wasn't about me. This is about, you know, ego and proof and blah, 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 right? And I went down to the pool and there was these four girls sitting there and I talked to them and they said something like, you know, oh, you know, and they were scared. They were scared to go down to the local Medina. And I said to them, you know, I said, you know, I'm, I know the area really well. I'm just lying, but BSing, right? I said, if you want, I can take you there tomorrow. I'll charge you a fee, right? And so I actually went that afternoon and I took the bus down to the Medina and I took it back three times to know the route. And then I walked through the Medina and I just followed. And I followed tour groups and I just stand and watch what they were talking about and listen. And then the next morning I picked these girls up and I take them down and I show them this route that I planned for like five hours, right? They think I'm brilliant and I say all these things that I heard these other people say they gave me a hundred dollars they bought me dinner i'm thinking hold on i'm into something here right so then i started hustling a little bit and making a little bit of money and it started my trip you know that trip led to 42 countries uh 10 and a half years backpacking around the world right and you asked me the question you know how did it set me up it took a year and a half for the fear in my stomach to go and i was still that knot and into israel and i was living in israel for about a year I remember the day the fear suddenly was gone. I knew it was always there. I knew I always felt this tension in my stomach like I was going to throw up. But one day it stopped. And it was when I started to see people and realize that people are just the same as me. And that, you know, and I started to fall in love with people on a whole other level. So what, what are some of the things that you did to make money while you were going through this? Because there's a lot of people who have this, you know, this gnawing inside their body and they're like, I just, you know, I got to get out of doing what I'm doing right now. And, you know, even, even people in their late twenties and early thirties and, you know, make, take a trip, but they don't take a trip and then decide not to come home and to spend the next 10 years continuing to travel. What was it that was inside of you that allowed you to do that as opposed to saying, you know, I got to go back to school. I got to go back to work. I got to get married. I got to have kids, all that shit. Well, you know, the, the truth is I, I had no, no, there was no safe harbor, right? My parents, my mom had nothing. My dad, I tried following my dad collect and he refused to call. I mean, you know, cause I, I actually broke all the bones in the right side of my face in Israel and I ended up, you know, having a major operation and my dad wouldn't even take the call. Right. So it was like, here I am. I, I didn't feel like there was anywhere to go back to. And so, you know, and to, to be able to succeed in, in, in these different arenas, the muscles I had to develop, which was immediate rapport, you know, and, and, and people had to trust me because, you know, to get a job and work illegally, you know, people have to give you cash. It's a risk for them as well, right? So there was that. There was muscles that had to come along with this, and 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 then what happened was, as I say, when when, I, when my mind opened up and I started seeing the world differently, I started seeing opportunities differently, and I started doing things because I wanted to do them. I started doing things because I loved to do them. So I became a sports organizer of a big kibbutz, you know, this big hotel. You know, I started off as you know, carrying suitcases off the bus. You know, I, I'd make tips, and then what I did was I got to know the guy who ran everything, and and I and I was always asking for more. I was always pushing. I was always, I always work harder. I'd watch any single job I saw someone do. I would watch them do it. I'd study them. I still do this today. I would model the best person I saw doing it. So whoever was doing the best, I'd model exactly what they did and try and add another 10% or another 15% more or more, or more creativity. And so I'd go into these jobs and I would kick butt right away and I would work my tail off. And typically I'd say, look, let me work for free. Just give me somewhere to stay. And what I'd do is, you know, I'd get a 
place. Sometimes I'd be sleeping on someone's boat or, you know, they'd have a little outhouse somewhere, all, all different places. And then what I do after four days, five days, and when they could see how hard I worked and what I could bring to them, then I'd say, look, I'm sorry, I've got to go. And they say, why? I said, well, I need to make some money. I, you know, I just got to live as well. And they said, no, no, we'll pay you. Well, I said, I don't have a work permit. Well, don't worry, we'll pay you cash. <laughs> and that's kind of how I do it. So I'd always give, you know, there's that saying, you know, people want, you know, they say, you know, give me fire, then I'll give you wood, right? Was there a part of you that just longed for a relationship or, you know, a girlfriend or to, you know, have some sense of normalcy or was it just pure adrenaline that you just couldn't stop? No, I, I met girls everywhere. I mean, because I mean, part of, you know, the, the charm and, you know, so I, I was often and what i do is be really honest to go i say look i'm a traveler if you want to experience something like full out right now but it's just not going to last because i'm moving but if you want to so a lot of girls would sort of go on that journey with me of, of experiencing something on a much deeper level but for a short space of time and i never lied i never played that game but so i was constantly in different types of relationships and then i, I met a girl that her and i dated for a couple of years and she just met me in different parts of the world she was from germany and she met me in different parts of the world. So I don't think I, I yearned for that. And, and I didn't know what normal was. I didn't grow up in normal. And to be honest, what's happening right now, my youngest son is hitchhiking across Japan right now. And he just traveled all the way through China. He's just 18. And I wanted him to get a sense uh, of what this feels like to overcome fear. And so we spent a week in New Zealand doing you know adrenaline every single day, something that scared him. And I said, all I want you to do, Ben, is I want you to feel fear and understand what it feels like in your body and understand how you can navigate it. So we did bungee jumps. We skydived from 15,000 feet. We did whitewater rafting. Every day we did something that scared him. And, and Neva's bungee jump scared the bejesus out of him. But what I, what I started to notice was he started to understand the feeling of fear. And, and if you understand the definition of fear, it's the anticipation of pain, the anticipation of pain. A lot of people think it's false evidence, period real but the actual definition is the anticipation of pain and so what, what when you're traveling and why a lot of people don't well, when they want to go on vacation they go to all-inclusive resorts or they they want to go places that feel like home it's because of that anticipation the brain is tricking them but what i found was when we go outside the comfort zone like ben is right now hitchhiking across japan when we stay outside long enough and we allow ourselves to feel that feeling of fear and discomfort long enough we find something that we can possibly discover inside. And what it starts to happen is we start to develop a self-trust, a self-knowing. I trust myself in any situation. I don't care what it is, what it looks like, where it is in the world, drop me in the middle of anywhere. But that comes from me constantly putting myself in that sort of uncomfortable zone. And that's what I'm doing with both my kids. My, my other son's in Mexico right now. I say, look, just travel for one or two years, come back, know more about who you are, then make choices for your life. Then choose which path you want to go on, right? Do you pay for their trips or do they pay for their trips? Well, it's a combination because I do believe, you know, Western culture is kind of weird. Right? If, I, if we grew up in India, if you and I were Indian brothers, we would live together and we would help each other. And we would help each other buy our first house. We'd help each other buy our second house. You know, so culturally, some cultures support young people. In North America, it's like, you know, off you go. Some parents will help with schooling, but it's almost like you leave the nest and you go and do it on your own. In some cultures, they do it as a family. And, and I've, I've sort of learned from that. So with Benny, uh, Benny, was work, he's traveling. He had $22 a day, right? So he earned a couple of thousand dollars before he left. But, you know, but we did nine and a half. We did uh, two and a half months, nine countries together. And I paid for that, but he had to work. So he was working and he was contributing to my work. So he came to the events. 
you know, he helped with some video. He was doing different things for me, right? But on his own here, you know, he won't ask for it. He's like me. He won't ask for a penny. And so, he, like last three days ago, he slept in a he slept in a restaurant booth. The reason he's hitchhiking is because he can't afford to stay in a, in a hotel or a hostel and to to travel. So he's opted for hitchhiking and he tries to find these cheap hostels. But he's like, Dad, Dad I don't want to. I don't need help. I I can do this on my own, right? My eldest son's like slightly different. Uh, he's on a one year trip around the world with an organization. So we paid for that as part of his graduation. And, you know, he, he worked for four months or five months and he saved up $4,000 or $5,000 to go with him. But we contributed to that. So does that make sense? It makes total sense. Now, here's what's interesting because I'm a father too. And the thought of, I'm just going to be dead honest with you. The- thought of my daughter sleeping in, and maybe it's different with gender, I don't know, but the thought of her hitchhiking, sleeping in, you know, a hotel, in a, a restaurant booth freaks me out, makes me feel like, you know, I got to, like, I want to, like, as you're telling the story, I want to get in a helicopter and go save them. And that's probably the work <laughs> that I need to do because you know that because look, let's be honest, it would mean nothing to you to send him a check for any amount you wanted to send him. You certainly have the means to do it, but it doesn't seem to phase you negatively to allow him to go through this experience. Can you kind of just explain that? Yeah, I think I think there's two things. And, and we should talk about, you know, I live in Canada. I, I work in the U.S. a lot. I've traveled all over the world, 84 countries, and I'm still traveling. I, I love to try and see two or three new countries a year. I think that America, if there's a distinction between culture, and I'm really big on culture, cultural nuances and cultural distinctions. And I think the difference in American culture, but parents or or most moms would be fearful, most dads would would be fearful for their children. But America has a lot more fear associated with hitchhiking because, you know, the way that you tell the news, you know, one person's killed hitchhiking and now hitchhiking is this thing you'd never do blah blah blah. and i watched how the news is is really is so insidious where in some countries i mean japan ben's loving hitchhiking he's met so many cool people hitchhiking and you know a little old lady came out and gave him a bottle of water when he was standing on the side of the street and a businessman came out and said hey listen you know i want to give you a tip you know your sign you're asking to go too far japanese people won't think that way change the sign and he got picked up in five minutes so he's what, what, what this is experience is doing is for him to develop his capacity to talk to people who are not like him. Because at the end of the day, we know that, you know, whether Ben decides to go to school or not, if he has these people skills and he has this, this capacity to see and understand culture and to reach into people and to, and they feel something really special about him, he's going to succeed at anything he wants in life. But right? those muscles are imperative. But if we walk around in fear and if I was like, Oh my God, you know, and I do get, I mean, there's moments where I sit there and go, I hope he's all right. You know, I just hope he's all right. Now, remember my parents couldn't ever talk to me. There wasn't such a thing as WeChat or anything else like that. I mean, I can reach out and say, Hey, good, bud. And he says, hey, dad, I'm great. Having a great time. He tells me a story, you know, and boom. So I can, I can actually touch him and, and make sure, you know, if I, if I have that niggly feeling. But, you know, his mom, she, she afraid? She has been. But she's watching them develop. And she's seeing their character and their, their resiliency and their honor and their, you know, all these things coming from being outside of what they know. Is his mom like you in as far as all the things that we've been talking about was she a traveler was she away for a long period of time or are you guys very different she's a, she's swedish um so she did travel um she was a business owner 
And but once she had babies, she became quite fearful. And so, you know, she does worry. She worries a lot. And, um, you know, I mean, when we, Ben and I were doing adrenaline week, I said, let's send her the photographs afterwards. <laughs> right? let's, not, let's not send them to her during adrenaline week. Right. And, you know, when she saw him, she's like, oh my God. But she also gets, she, she, so there's a part of her that, that realizes what we're doing right now. And, but does she, yeah, but she, she has a whole lot of fear that she carries as I think a lot of mothers do, but she's not letting it get in the way of their experience, but she wants them to be careful. She wants them to, you know, she wants them to be sensible. You know, I, I, I want that too, but I also realize, I mean, think, let's go back to your life. Think of how many crazy things you've done. And if your parents knew about it, they go, Oh my God, if I'd known that, <laughs> I'd never let you out. <laughs> right. It's so true. Right. And, and this is what generations do to each other. And I'm like, Ben, just go there. I mean, look, you know, and I said to him when we were doing adrenaline, week, I said, you know what? There's a chance. There's a chance we won't make it. Right. But it's not going to be from skydiving. It's going to be from taking the bus to skydiving. Because <laughs> statistically, you know, the most dangerous thing we do every single day is drive our freaking cars. Right. Statistically. And here we do. We do that with no thinking. If I say to you, listen, let's go and, you know, hike in the woods for a weekend, most people are terrified because they're gonna think they're not thinking about the woods, they're thinking about the bear that's gonna eat them in the woods. <laughs> right? So so Ben took a gap year. Is that right? Well, no, he, he just left school. I, I don't want to call it a gap year because it may turn into five years. I don't know. I mean, I don't love school anyway, and I never loved it. And so it's hard for me to tell them to go and get a, you know, I, I say follow your passion. And so Ben has a passion in music and you know, in the arts and we'll see. But he also loves network marketing and I'm a professional network marketer and it's something that he really thinks he wants to do and pursue. So that may be his thing. We'll see. Uh, my, my eldest son, he's, he's a homebody. He, even though he's traveled for a year, I can see him marrying young and, and, and not having this big vision for his life. I can see him being really happy um, in, a, in a relationship. So, I, you know, I have two very different boys, right? All right, so I want to talk a little bit about your business and what you do, but I want to give some context before we get there. So let's talk a little bit about the event that you attended, which was a Think and Grow Rich three-day training event that really expanded your money mindset and increased your income from four bucks an hour to 10,000 bucks a month. Can you kind of walk us through that, that time in your life? Yeah. So I, I was in Canada, you know, I'd fallen in love with the country. I'd left it like three times. I was working as a dishwasher, <laughs> uh, $4 an hour. And then I became the waiter in the, in the same restaurant. Same thing I do. I, I, I don't, I take the lowest job, I do it extremely well, and then sort of work my way through the ranks very fast, right? Became a waiter, became the number one selling waiter. And the, the guy who owns these, there was one restaurant, then there's 14 now. Him and I are really close friends, and we always laugh about, you know, him giving me my start in Canada. Um, but, you know, someone sh- uh, showed me a, a, an old VCR, you know, kind of video of an opportunity for a network marketing company. And I watched it like 40 times, and I'm thinking, really? You know, I, mean, I can I can do this and create freedom, and, and so I understood freedom because I've been living freedom my whole life, right? I've been free of everything. I had no car. I had no, you know, I was a free spirit in the world for ten and a half years, and so I got the freedom piece. So I joined a network marketing company, bombed, failed miserably, and so I joined another one, and they had a two and a half day program where I, I was asked to read Think and Grow Rich, and it was my first exposure to personal development. And I'm thinking, really, if I could think differently, I could become wealthy. And and so I, I remember, you know, 
changing how I approached my life, like a radical shift on what was showing up. I started, I, I created my first vision board and I started to sort of really pursue uh, this idea that if I helped enough people get what they want, I'd get what I wanted. And I remember when I got that first $10,000 check for a month, I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, no one in my whole life told me I was worth 10,000 bucks. None. No one's ever said that, Dave, you know, you can do whatever you want, Dave, you can make whatever you want, Dave. You know, and I turned that into 20 and then 30 and then 40 and then 50 and then 100, you know, and it was just this idea that the numbers didn't matter. It just mattered about how did I contribute or what I could give, right? And it wasn't that easy, by the way, because I failed, you know, that company was closed down. I sort of navigated, I, you know, I bought a restaurant and bar. I had a natural products distribution company, so I got back into conventional business. I started growing companies. And again, but in a, in a non-conventional way. Everything was really like, you know, our natural products distribution company was all over Canada, every health food store. You know, we were the pioneers of racking, you know, wooden racks at the end of the, the, the main racks. We were the people that pioneered that. And we had retail space right across the country. We broke into the US, but we found our clients and we said, look, if you double your order, we'll sing your song. We had two guitars there on speakerphone. And we'd be like Christmas, we'd be singing Christmas carols down. And people would be doubling their order. Like we had a really fresh and fun way, you know, to, to build businesses. So yeah, so I just I started to keep applying the the principles of, you know, not being limited by my, by my vision, challenging my own money blueprint and my money mindset and not being afraid to ask for more. You know, and 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 feeling that I could deserve more, you know, and I've made, you know, I've made a, a million dollars in a day, but it's certainly, you know, how do you get there is again through this idea of contribution and being fearless, you know, being able to walk into situations. And that's what these muscles I built over these years is I'm comfortable in every situation and I trust myself in them, right? So, so, but, but over that period of time, over that next decade, you built multiple million and multi-million dollar companies. And you did it in, like you mentioned, in lots of different areas from hospitality to real estate and including network marketing. So the question I have is, how do you approach learning the skill set that's needed to grow a company that large? Like, you know, lightning strikes, you know, once, that's one thing. But to do it over and over and over again, there's a strategy in place. Well, you know, it's interesting, right? If you ever watch Shark Tank, right? I, I really love listening to Mark Cuban. And here's this billionaire, right? And I love, you know, I don't see it very often, but I, I enjoy listening to them, what inspires them and who they invest in. And it always comes down to the character. The idea can be great, but they often, and I've watched Mark Cuban do this a number of times, where he didn't love the idea, but he loved the person, right? And, and the hustle. And Mark still talks about the hustle. I mean, he was a hustler, right? He, I mean, he turns his into billions. I tend to live life like Mark doesn't go, like going outside. He's not an outdoors guy. I live an adventure. I live every day like an adventure. So I'm not so interested in becoming a multi-billionaire. I'm interested in living a great life. So, you know, I have a great relationship with money, but I don't, I don't aspire to, you know, be consumed by it like some, some other people. But what I love and what I had is this thing. I'd start something. And I would give it so much energy. I knock on more doors. You talk about a natural products distribution company. I would throw our racks into a trailer. I would drive across the country and I went and banged on every single health food store. And I would double and triple and quadruple the size of our company in months. 
because I just banged on enough doors. And so the same principle I used to building my window cleaning business is the same principle. I don't sit behind fancy ideas. Like, for example, I started an advertising company in Kelowna. And the reason I started it was because I was the president CEO of a network marketing company at the time. When I, I, I resigned on principle, I mean, we were three years in, I'd grown this thing, we were quite large, um, and the, the, the board of directors, they wanted to, they didn't want to pay our associates what they deserved because they were earning more money than them as doctors. So I, I, I resigned. But because I resigned, my assistant resigned with me. And her mom called me the next day and she said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm worried about, you know, Courtney, what she's going to do. I said, don't worry, we'll start a company for her. Right? So I started, I came up with this idea and it was like, they called it miniature menus. And I, I, I just printed something on a computer. I had this rack and I went out and I just banged on doors. You know, we did $34,000 that first week. Right. And I had this half cooked idea and I just went out and banged on enough doors and we set this up. She ran that company for seven years. Right. We made millions and millions of dollars. We were right across the, not across the entire country, but Alberta, BC, you know, we were, we had a very, very thriving business and it allowed her to, 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 you know, to, to do quite well. But that's the difference. The difference is I don't, I don't get ready to get ready to get ready to get ready. I just say, okay, let's give me a half, the, give me a quarter of the idea. I'm going to go and bang on enough doors and figure out if it's working. Right. So I don't invest. I actually always believe that you don't need to invest a lot of money in a company. But if you can, if you can talk to enough people with the idea and you can, you can see what's responding. I mean, people respond with a yes and they love it and they start buying it. Great. You're on a summit. If they're like, you know, 40 people say no, you better sit back down and say, okay, something's not working here. It's either what I'm saying. It's the look. It's the feel. It's the angle. Either it's going to work or not work. So that's how I've done it always with, I mean, if I think of every company, even my restaurant, I still went out and talked to everyone in town, you know, and we did a million dollars that first year in this restaurant and restaurant business is a hard business. And we got the whole town behind this restaurant. We had lineups on the weekend, but guess what? I went and spoke to everyone in the town. I built, built rapport, built relationships, banged on doors. And I use it the whole time as you know, I don't think you can build it from the ivory tower, right? My God, there's so many directions I want to go in now. You, you really are one of the most fascinating guys in the world. So now, now you got all these multi-million dollar companies. You're going in and out of them. You're flipping them. You're selling them. And you went to an event uh, that was held by T. Harv Ecker. And that started a new career for you. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, you've, you've really done some homework. This is amazing. Um, you know, I, my wife and I were struggling, Pam and I. Um, Again, she's Swedish and, uh, and, and, you know, our marriage is kind of on the rocks. I was a different kind of cat, you know, and I, I still hadn't got to the place inside. I, I, lots of things were doing great, but, you know, I, I was carrying a lot of old stuff. You know, I mean, again, I, I had no relationship with my mom at the time. You know, it was just a lot of, you know, I never really committed to a relationship. You know, I sort of glanced through things. So, you know, this whole idea of having children and, and, and raising a family and, and you know, and I was this hustler and this traveler, you know, and I had really had to sort of find a new place inside of me to settle, right? And that wasn't happening with Pam and I. And so she asked me to go to this personal development program called uh, Warrior Camp, which is Harbecker's extreme kind of camp. I didn't, she said, would you come to this thing and see if, you know, it can help our marriage? I said, absolutely. And I didn't know what it was. She told me what to pack the day before. We drove up into the mountains of Whistler and we spent seven days on this warrior camp. And halfway through the second day, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to teach this program. And she said, I know, I know. 
in, and because what had happened a few years before, I'd emceed a wedding that had gone horribly wrong, horribly wrong. The, the groom side of the family all got up and left the wedding. Some of them didn't speak to him for a year. Oh my God, it was a mess. And so I was like, I, I, I even flew to Europe for, for, for I think eight weeks because I couldn't face any of my friends or my family. It was like total public humiliation. And what it was is I, I, I emceed this wedding and he said, don't do anything conventional. So I went over the top. I'd seen this comedian at a golf tournament and I, I, I stole his, all, I, I borrowed all of his shtick and brought it to a wedding. And it would have been great with a bunch of drunken golfers, but, you know, in a wedding with old grandmas and, you know, blue rinses, and, you know, I, I, you know, I pushed the boundary to such an extent. And, uh, yeah, and so, you know, to feel that depth of humiliation, and I carried that for about four years, and I kept thinking about it, and my wife would look at me, she'd say, stop thinking about it. And I kept trying to go back in time and fix this. I never felt that much humiliation and that, like, oh, my God, you know, to ruin a wedding. And, and it's not just the, the bride and the groom, it's the families, you know, and they were all my friends were there, right? And so when I saw this guy on stage doing what he was doing, I said, I, I, I can do this. And there was something, he had this magical effect on the room. And so I went up to him at the end of the program and I said, I want to teach this program. And he says, yeah, of course you do. Everyone does. And he was kind of really flippant, right? And, and, and so I said, uh, no, seriously. He said, well, no, I understand. I said, but listen, you'd have had to take all my programs to even ask me that question. So I took a year off. Unfortunately, I, I could take a year off. And I, and I volunteered for him. And I took every program. I bought, I bought the Quantum Leap package. And I took 13, I think, 13 or 11, maybe 11 programs in one year. And I took two the next year. But I, I started volunteering, running mics. I, I, I worked, but again, what I did was I watched the hardest person, person, working person, the most effective person in the room. And I watched what they did. I copied it and did more. And then I was asked to become his assistant. But at the very, very end of it, at the end of the year, we're at wizard camp and you know, I'm a, I, I, I have a certain uh, confidence which can be, you know, construed as arrogant sometimes. And he looks at me, he sits me down and he says, David, you are never ever going to be on one of my stages. And he says, you're just not the right fit. And I looked at him and I just put a whole year, well, almost 14 months of my life and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and traveling around the world and volunteering. And I looked at him, I said, you can't stop me. I said, one day you're going to be sick and I'm going to be ready. And I went home and I started videotaping myself and I had his, because I took his notes, right? <laughs> so I knew what he's teaching and I started to study it. And, and I started to practice and practice and practice. And, and then one day he phoned me and it was, wasn't long after, two and a half months later, and he was sick. He had this flu like he's never had. He says, listen, I've got an event in New York. It's 1,600 people, New Jersey. He said, can you do it? I said, yep. And I went there and I did it because I sold. I mean, his business was about selling personal development. And my sales were identical to his my first time out. That is what that experience, that desire, then you actually doing it is what I'm assuming led you to the next stage of your life, which is where you did your own training. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what it is that you do. And I know that some of the programs that you have and, and have had, I don't know if they're all still in existence, but a few of them are the Enlightened Training Circle, the Journey to the Stage, the Art of Connection, Good to Great, Beyond Courage, and Mastering the Stage. So pick any one of those and maybe you can kind of just explain what it is that you're doing now. Well, what happened? I mean, again, what I, I've taken a couple of years off because of my kids, so I, I, I'm not doing a lot of events. I do events for for one, for primarily for one company. So I do I, I do probably one or two events 
a month, uh, and mostly around the world. So I'm in Singapore coming up, Australia. Good to great is obviously uh, is about training and speaking. I love training trainers. And because I went through the sort of the dark side where I was immobilized for four years and then came through to be one of the more effective trainers and anyone who comes, that sounds very big headed, but it's not, you know, I understand a room and because of my understanding of people, I use whole brain accelerated learning, which I learned from Harv and all of his teachers. And I spent a couple of years learning with different masters of this arena uh, of training and speaking. It's like, you know, even a great podcast, right? You know, my podcast, you know, I did 430 shows. Again, I've taken two years off because I want to really be focused on my kids right now and be available to them. But my podcast, The Kick-Ass Life, you want the work we do, like your work, and you have great questions and this great sense about you, this great understanding of people. But you want people to listen to something and you want to fire the brain in such a way that 10 years from now, they can still remember it. And so with my work, I I, I don't I, I really think about the brain firing in such a way. So I use, you know, kinesthetic, I use audio, I use visual, I use but I use so many different techniques woven in, but really a lot of humor, a lot of fun. Where but uh, but I want to see a radical change in people's lives. And, and and I don't do the change, they do the changing, but I create the environments where transformation can occur. And it's not about me. I mean people often come up, so oh, you changed my life. I said, no, no, you did the change. I just created the environment where you plug yourself into and you're committed to that to that change. So I want to be that effective that 10 years from now, what the people learn in that room, they can still remember. They, they, they find themselves quoting something to happen. And that's the difference between a master trainer. So good to great is teaching people the systems, the templates, the, you know, the, the personal range. A lot of it's what's happening inside. How do we think? Where, does the, where do the words come from? You mentioned that you are um, going to be going back on the road again uh, to Singapore. So you travel a lot. How many days per year are you on the road? Well, it depends. This year I took on a lot more because I wanted my son. Because uh, you know I took on a lot more work than I normally would. So again, we did nine countries in two and a half months. So Mexico, Singapore, Fiji, Australia, New Zealand. We went all over, right? So depending, I, I, I choose because of passion. I just did an event for two leaders out of Australia, and they asked me to come to Vanuatu, which is really one of the happiest places on the planet. Unbelievable. And I, I said yes because of two reasons. One is I'd never been there. So for me, it was like, oh my gosh, of course I want to train there. The second was that they, they said, well, if we fly your son in and he can come and work the event, as a bonus, I'll do it for that. But really, life check. So I go in there and I spent five days ahead of time and I wrote the program with the topography, with the villages, with the, the whole island. I took the whole island as a stage and we wrote a program. So they were there for seven days, right? And we did this incredible like leadership training, but using the, the backdrop of the of the people on the island. That's what turns my crank. And I, I can see myself doing a lot more adventure breakthrough stuff, you know, taking people, uh, small groups or large groups or groups like that into the unknown and developing a program real time. You know, you kind of create it as it's happening. I don't like that that static stuff and watching what can happen in those because again, it's self-trust, right? That's probably the, the thing I love the most, but how much do I travel? Um, I'd say probably half the year. But I, you know, I take Julys. I'm always at home. I love to be on my lake here, right? Uh, I don't work in Decembers. I work half of August. So I do take big blocks of time off. I'm home for three weeks right now. And I was invited to go on a trip uh, to, to, to actually on a cruise with a whole group of people. And I, I declined because I wanted to be here and I wanted to get some writing done. So yeah, so it's a bit like that. 
If you could live anywhere else outside of Canada, which I know you love, where would it be? It's interesting you ask that question because, you know, I lived on a sailboat for a year and I sailed across the Atlantic in a 45-foot boat and then I hitchhiked all the way through the Caribbean coming up to America. And last week I was down on my friend's yacht. He has an 85-foot yacht. I've never liked yachts or big stink pots, I call them. But, you know, he had a cook and he had this thing. And I, and I think, you know, I may, I'm looking, I like chapter i think in chapters if you think of life as chapters instead of you know like you know life so i think this this is the chapter of my life this chapter of my life is being around for my kids more than i have been and making sure that i can have time with them so traveling with ben and designing my life around his needs right now which is what i okay i'm able to do right but when i was on the water for the week i think it reminded me of how beautiful it is to live on a boat and I could see a, a chapter coming where I potentially would live aboard a boat and move the boat so that it still sort of talks to my spirit, which is this unknown you know, going into Central and South America or going around you know, through the Panama Canal or Mexico, that kind of thing, and living on a boat for three or four or five years until I get you know, to the point where I, I want a new chapter. That's something cool. I'm a scuba diver. I love the water. I'm a sailor, right? And, and it was just sort of reminding me last week of how incredible it is to have that kind of lifestyle uh, and then incorporate it with my business and this I've never told anyone I mean I've told one other person this but I'm telling you this but I'd like to do it with a buy a, you know an 80 foot yacht maybe with a couple of other people that, that, that won that lifestyle um, and you know who would love to be on the yacht at the same time but big enough where if you want to bring in eight clients or eight, eight students and do the high level coaching that you could incorporate that so that's something that's just brand new in my brain it just happened because of what happened last week and now I'm like already and I've already started negotiating on a boat so that's how crazy i am <laughs> so that, that that could be me right but i haven't decided yet i'm still you know where i live i live in the most beautiful part of the world so uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get into uh, your Instagram handle so people can take a look at the view from your living room, dining room. It's one of the most spectacular things that I've ever seen. I've never been there. Um, I haven't gotten the invite yet. But yeah, you've got the invite. I told you, I'm going to invite you again publicly. You had the invite. Get your ass up here and stop, stop, stop whining. How many suitcases do you carry on a trip and what are your travel non-negotiables? All right. Look, I tell you one thing that I, I when you talk about life by design, my big thing is life by design. Now, look, I have I lived a lot of my life with no money, and now I have money, right? I, if I lost it all tomorrow, I, I could win the clean again. I have no attachment. And I know it sounds kind of odd, but what I've done, and I tell my, my people, is write a list of all the things you don't like to do and all the things you love to do. So there's certain things I don't like to do. Like I don't like unpacking suitcases, right? right? I don't like shopping. I don't like, and things I don't like. So what I do is I have a staff of people that do the things I don't like so I can focus only on the things I like. So I have a housekeeper and I have, a, 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 I have an assistant, I have a, a bookkeeper. So the, I, but I know all the things. So I try to do in my life only the things I love. So with travel non-negotiables, right, is I don't like packing, but I have to pack. That's one of the things I have to do because it's, it's there, right? I always carry a, a one case with just the nutritional products that I use. I've been using them for almost 14 years. I carry a blender with me, uh, I, and, I, and I carry one suitcase that's full of products. I carry. I always take too many clothes. And the reason I know why it is is because I lived out of a backpack 
for so many years that I never know if I want to come home. So I always think, well, I'll take that just in case. Because if I decide to change my plans and I want to go on to somewhere else, I've got stuff with me. So I seem to always overpack and I'm always overweight. <laughs> so I carry typically two suitcases and I carry my my uh, my computer bag. Non-negotiables now is I love traveling in style. I like flying first class. I will move days to have a better flight. When I go, because I work, let's say I'm going into Singapore, I will never fly in and fly out, do the job and leave. I want to have an experience wrapped around my work. So I always go in, I always book time either before or after or both, where I can go and immerse myself in the culture of the country I'm in. And I see a lot of corporate people, they go in, they fly in, they do the thing, they fly out. They, you know, they, they just don't, I can't imagine flying across the world and not you know, doing something in New Zealand that I want to remember 10 years from now. And I think like that. So I think in, you know, this idea of travel uh, and people complain about a 17 hour flight. Oh my gosh, you know, you ring a bell, someone brings you a drink. You ring, I don't care if you're in first class or not, you can still ring a bell and someone's going to serve you. But the idea that we're traveling in this capsule across the world and we can step out in a whole new culture, I still get excited. I love long flights. So again, you know, non-negotiables is to really, when I'm in a culture or when I get off a plane, is to do something that I want to remember 10 years from now. I want to create stories. So I'm a story writing machine. I want to say yes to things. I want to do crazy things. I want to stay up too late before the event. You know, you say, oh, you should get a good night's sleep. Why? Why don't I go out and I'll still be out of work the next day? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. I want to do a rapid fire round of questions with you. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. So what would your friends say is one of your superpowers? <laughs> uh, fearless. What's one of the things that you're afraid of right now? Commitment. <laughs> Wait. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? Um, focus. What one book have you reread the most? West with the Night by Beryl Markham. Hmm. She was the first woman aviator in Africa, and she's the first person to fly east to west across the Atlantic. Her life was remarkable, and she just inspires me that she was, you know, she used to hunt with the Maasai. And, you know, this is this you know, white girl who saw a plane and she learned in the cockpit. I'm a pilot, right? And so just the idea of flying a biplane across Africa at a time where there's no lights. And the first, the first chapter is called Mugway. And she's flying a cylinder to the mines in Africa, over, over Africa at night alone in her biplane delivering this oxygen and she's just a, such a beautiful writer and i have lots of personal development books but that one there inspires me to just to just to live an extraordinary life and and never be afraid of the unknown right hmm. what's the one thing that you own that you probably should throw out but you never will yeah in other words every you know you got it and you look at it and you're like i gotta get rid of this thing but every time you're like i just i can't get rid of this thing it's really only closed because I don't keep any. I'm really good at. I, I, when you come to my house, you'll see. I mean, I have no clutter anywhere. I just realize I don't, and I'm not attached to anything. So I don't actually carry anything around. But, but I think, oh, I should get rid of it. I don't think I do. If I can think about something, I will. But clothes, sometimes we close, oh, yeah, I'll keep that. You know, and I'm, my, my wardrobe has got so much crap in it. And it's like, that would probably be my nemesis. 
You did get rid of those hot pans from the window cleaning days, though, right? <laughs> my, my, my friend, my friend brought him to a party the other day because he, 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 they called me the Guatemala man because I used to sew a lot. So I used to sew, you know, my, I used to do a lot of my own repairs because my, my grandmother was a seamstress. And like, I can't believe it. I couldn't get him past my knees. That's how big I've got. <laughs> and I'm pretty fit, right? Anyway. <laughs> All right. Final, final question. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do, anything that you have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be? Cooking. Wow. I didn't expect that. Cooking. Well, there's just something about, you know, or I'm really hosting, but the idea of because what, what cooking has taught me, I love to cook. And then what cooking's taught me this on so many levels, you know, it, it's everything. It's, 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 it's the, the process, but then it's the sharing and it's the, you know, creating these memories. I, I love hosting people at my house and I love everything to be magical. You know, the music, the, the, you know, everything. And I, I, but I love the whole process when I'm cooking, I love making bread, but it just taught me a lot about, about, you know, developing flavors. I mean, and it's so, there's so there's so much to learn and it's so deep and it's so rich but the the result is always when you're putting something in your mouth and you're looking across the table at your friends and you're laughing and you put so much love into this and there again you're creating this memory that hopefully you'll remember for the rest of your life this and i can often i can remember meals with my friends and and you know just the laughter and the and the you know, great wine and just the everything ambiance and you know how everything everything's important right i think that's it. Everything's important. Well, I got to tell you, this interview was something I've been waiting for a long time for. You did not let down. You have been an inspiration to me, Kim, and so many people. You are truly an example of a life lived so well. Uh, so thank you. Do you have uh, any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Uh, I'd like to answer that question. I, I, I struggle with it, but the, you know, what people could ask, you know, just how do I have an extraordinary life? <laughs> because we, we wrap it up with money. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, this guy, his name's Cosmin. He came to my house. He's from Romania and he's struggling. He's a priest who built a church in America and he came up here and he's really struggling. He works with his hands and he doesn't like his job and I feel the energy on him, but he's just lit up guy that would have so much impact and I challenged him I, and I, you know, we just started talking and I, could say, I said I feel the heaviness in you what's going on and he shared with me that you know he's just not liking what he's doing and he has this vision to build this church and you know and it's not going as well he has these two daughters and I said can I challenge you he said yeah I said what if tomorrow or even tonight when you jump in that car instead of you disliking what you're doing what if you just start to love it and you start to bring that energy that's within you, the, the thing that you want to share with the world, you bring it to your toilet you're going to fix tomorrow and the blinds, your, he, he, he repairs apartment buildings. I said, and think about every time you do something, every lock you fix, every every step you clean, that you're improving someone's life because he works in a lot of lower, lower end buildings. I said, but what if you start bringing that magic and that gratitude, and you go to work tomorrow, and you are completely lit up. I said, what do you think you're going to attract? What do you think is going to happen? 
I said, you know, because then the next opportunity is waiting, but it can only meet you if you love the moment you're in. And you may want it to look different, but guess what? The universe, and you believe in God, your God is saying, no, not right now. You got to feel this. You got to go through this valley, but why not charge through the valleys lit up with gratitude, with passion, with fun? And, and so you come home with a full cup for your daughters, because right now when you're coming home, you're coming home half empty because you're hating what you're doing. I said, and, and, and I said, and if you believe in divine intervention, then we're meant to have this conversation. We're meant to be talking right now. And then I said to him, and you're struggling to build a church? I said, and I brought him upstairs and I showed him my podcasting uh, studio. It's tiny, right? $340 investment. You can talk to the one. I said, why not build a different church without walls? Why not? You know, and we started talking about imagining his life, that he, all he's got to do to have everything, to have extraordinary, it's not about money. It's not about where you live. I don't care. I mean, I've lived on the ping pong tables, you know, with, with nine guys in a, in a frat house. It doesn't matter where it, well, the question is extraordinary is the state of mind. Extraordinary is in the worst moments, in the hardest times, in the, in the, the, the times where you're really dragging your sorry ass around that you realize how great, grateful, how grateful you are to be, just be alive and you start to live like with the, through that gratitude and you start to show up and start noticing people and being kinder, being more compassionate, smiling more, laughing more, touching more, inviting more and watch what happens and then and then the extraordinary happens because someone's going to notice and say, oh, you have such beautiful energy. I'd love to work with you. Hey, listen, what do you want? And this is where the magic happens and I think, you know, that's the question. If people ask more, it's just like extraordinary Every one of us, I don't care if you're at home right now and you're going through a messy divorce, go through it elegantly. Put a smile back on your face. Remember, struggle takes two people to struggle, right? I believe in divine divine divorce, elegant separations. I believe that you can be best friend. And again, it, but it takes one. It takes one person. So extraordinary is something that we can, we can experience every moment of every day with or without money. And I can say that with authority because I've been in both. What a beautiful answer. Um, but then I have a follow-up question for you, and that would be, what would the approach look like for that particular gentleman to tackle the extraordinary life that he know he can have? So in other words, deep inside him, he's got this desire that you're able to see that's, that's in there to do something else, but he's got a block. He's not willing to do it. Yeah, his, 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 block, his, block, his block is control. So what I said to him, I said, said, you know, tell me, you know, right now, what's the one thing you think if you could shift, you know, what would that, what would it look like that you, to, for you to be able to go through that door? And he said, because I just, I want to control everything. And see, the thing is that everything's fluid, right? Everything's fluid. Everything's moving. That's where self-trust comes from. Every, uh, William Whitecloud wrote a book called The Magician's Way. And in The Magician's Way, he talks about, you know, expectations of the enemy. Detachment is the ally. You know, and, you know, for, for all of our best intentions, we can, we can think that this is going to happen in a certain way or a certain sequence. But the truth is those people that truly succeed is when, when things don't go as we want, we just adapt. We adapt and we move with what's actually happening, not what we wish is happening, what's going on with him. He had a picture of coming here, meeting a few people, them investing in him, building a church, and they had to be a certain type of person with a certain type of belief. And, you know, and everything about his rigidity makes it impossible for him to be happy. 
right? So all he's got to do is let go of control and flow with what's actually happening, happening. And the fact he has deep faith in his in his God is that he can say, hey, listen, this is all meant to be happening. I mean, I always believe that everything's meant to be happening. But the fact is, when we go, we can notice whether we're feeling better about something or worse. We feel worse. We just turn. We, we, we adjust. We, you know, we adjust our mindset or we adjust our course, but we get to control it. So, which means it doesn't matter how bad things are. You know, they, they, they will become our greatest stories. That many stories I've shared today, you know, that could have been morose. I wouldn't go back and change and hope my mom and dad stay together. They would have been terrible together, right? And, and so the idea, though, that, you know, he, he has to let go of his expectations and his control in order for him to follow the magic that's about, that will open up in front of him because his spirit is so strong. It's just suffocated now by this, oh, my God, it's not working. And he's fearful for his two daughters because, you know, he has to make an income and he has to try and create a new start. Does that make sense? It does. So how does he let go of the control if the control is there in some way to serve him or at least in quotes serve him so that he can make the income for his kids? Well, what's great. Well, that's why I challenged him. I said, look, this is something I said, when do you want to let go of the control? And he said, well, right away. I said, well, great, let's do it. So let's think of where you, where are you most controlled? Let's give me an example of where you are, are, are want to have control. And then what we'll do is we'll practice because it's a practice. It's not like I, I had to practice you being non fearless, right? Fearless means that I don't get scared about many things. Even my son would say that when we were doing adrenaline week. He says, Dad, how come you're never scared? I say, because I don't think about the next step. I think about the step I'm in. So, but I practice that. I practice staying present on each step. So by the time you get to the bungee site, I'm still there, but I'm practicing one thing at a time, right? So for him, how does he do it? Well, there's a feeling in the body. When you're in control, when you're trying to control something that's not going well, then you're going to feel something. Right, so that that's the notice. So, so he's going to notice that. Okay, I'm getting up tight. I'm feeling tense. I'm I'm my my energy's dropping. I'm you know my my thoughts are becoming darker. But there's going to be every time he hits that wall, he's going to feel something. He's got to start to notice what the feeling is, and then he's got to choose. All right, so what do I choose now? Do I choose the control where this feeling is there, or do I change my focus? So a lot of it is focus and then action. So he's going to have to change what he's focusing on and take a step towards the things he wants. So then, and so again, and he'll talk to me about this a few more times, but first we notice what's going on in the body, all right? If we if we keep feeling that, so if you're doing something right now at home and you're not feeling great, notice what you're doing, your physiology first, right? Notice how you're feeling. Now, what if you change your focus and then take a new leap with your body, you physically move. So now you're focused on something new and you're physically moving through something new. What's going to happen is there's going to be a shift of energy that's going to be complete, all right? You'll leave the energy behind, you're focusing on something, and you'll notice, okay, I'm feeling great. I feel, I'm feeling powerful. I'm feeling like I can do this. Great. We'll keep doing that. And then you find yourself course correct again. And you start to feel this heaviness again. Hey, I don't want that. So then what it is, is this constant understanding of what our physical and our emotional body is doing. So that, hey, and the quickest way out, change of focus, change of action. Boom, boom, right? And sometimes crank the music up. Just dance. Just freaking dance. Dance and scream, right? Afterwards, how do you feel? You feel alive again. What are you focused on now? Focus on what you want. Don't focus on the things you can't get, right? 
You know, we're going to have to do a part two. That's all there is to it because we could just, we, I, I've said, I've, I've already said goodbye and here we go. We're starting a new, we're starting a new episode. So this is, uh, David, I, you know, what can I say, man? Thank you so much for taking the time with me. Thank you for going all in. Thank you for being fearless. Thank you for impacting the people that are around me on such a positive way. I mean, you just, you're just incredible. So um, I'm just so grateful to have you in my life. Well, thank you. And I, I look forward to it. And I want to say again, the invite is open anytime, anytime. You're always welcome. And thank you for what you're doing. And I, I'm so, so glad that you're doing this, that your your level of, of, of understanding is coming out into the world through your podcast. So congratulations. And just one last thing is David T.S. Wood. David T.S. Wood is my Facebook and David T.S. Wood is my Instagram. If anyone wants to sort of hook up there. Awesome. I was going to put that into the intro and in the show notes, but it's good that we have it here too. This way nobody misses it. Thank you again, David. All right. I love you, brother. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. We'll be right back. 